Well, the, the key physiological variables, if you're a middle or a long distance runner, are things like your VO2 max. I'm sure it's a phrase everybody's kind of read about. It's, it's the maximal rate at which you can take oxygen from the air that you breathe and transport it to your muscles and then, and then use it basically to combust carbohydrate and fat to generate energy. So VO2 max, you know, that's got to be pretty high if you're going to achieve success at a reasonably high level. Um, the fraction of that VO2 max that you can operate at for long periods, so that seems to be related to your so-called lactate threshold. There's a certain speed above which lactate accumulates in your blood really rapidly, and that's associated with a whole cascade of other fatiguing, um, you know, things happening within your muscles. Some things are depleting really rapidly. Some things are accumulating, but ultimately it means your muscles are functioning less well. Um, that's what we call fatigue. So we measure the lactate threshold and uh, something called running economy. It's, if you're a cyclist, it's efficiency. If you're if you're running, it's economy. But basically, if if you get a group of people all running at exactly the same speed, they don't all necessarily expend the same amount of energy or consume the same amount of oxygen. Some people are much more economical than others. You know, can transport their body mass over the ground uh, using less fuel, using less energy. Uh, so it's those three things. Welcome to Midlife Athlete Podcast, and um, as usual, it's uh, me, host Jason Smith, and my co-host Greg Ryan. Uh, hello. hello, hi there, mate. How are you? I'm I'm fine. What? Um, so, Squadcast has called you a really um, self-disciplined stereo this week. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's just interesting to see what they keep on cropping up with. <laughs> we'll find, we'll sure find what, a moniker I like soon. Yeah, I'm not sure where they got the self-discipline from, but um, really pleased uh, <laughs> on this episode that we've got uh, Professor Andy Jones, um, who is um, Professor of Applied Physiology at Exeter University. Um, and uh, he's, I, I guess, best described as an expert in sports performance physiology, nutrition, I know you've done a lot of studies in, in uh, with uh, beetroot and beetroot juice, um, but a particular focus on uh, endurance athletes. And um, I, I mean, the sort of track record you've got with athletes is is second to none, I think. Um, Andy, you've worked with Paula Radcliffe. Uh, you've worked with uh, Iliad Kipchugi uh, as part of the Nike Breaking 2 project. Um, so you've worked with some of the some of the best out there so re really pleased to have you on board thanks thanks for uh, for your time today pleasure nice to be here thanks for the invitation uh, it's great um andy it's it's probably worth start worth starting with saying that um you're you're no mean athlete yourself are you you've you've you you did some pretty impressive things when when you were uh when you were a, a teenager yeah, I guess so. It's a long time ago, though. It seems like a different lifetime, really. Um, but yeah, I, I was really into my athletics in my uh, teens, really. And it's, it's the usual story. I was going re really well, 16, 17, 18, went away to university, got ill, more often got injured, you know, and, and you keep trying to make a comeback. And then 
other things kind of catch up with you, really. I, I became increasingly interested in, in the science of performance as well as my own performance. And it was around that same time I started working with Paula for the first time as well. And, um, you know, I was dreaming of being the uh, Olympic champion or the world record holder. And, you know, to be, I think I may have been able to get to an Olympics, but working with Paula made me realize that I probably wasn't going to be good enough um, <laughs> to be the Olympic champion or the world record holder, whereas there were people like her that, that could achieve that. And, you know, I sort of thought I'd jump ship and live vicariously through her experiences as well. But it definitely helps if you're working with um, athletes of that caliber to have experienced some level of success yourself, or at least to have experienced the same sorts of training sessions that you know they're going to do or that you might be recommended. So, it's, yeah, so it, it's it's meshed together quite nicely, you know. I still have a bit of a go occasionally, um, but uh, no, it's um, you know when you've been an athlete of any type, I suppose it, it makes it even you appreciate it even more when you work with the greats. You uh, you never stop counting your blessings that um, you get the opportunity to interact with them and to perhaps assist them in some way if you can. So what was what was your um, uh, when you first when you first got together with Paula? Were you training together? I mean, was it was it at a, at a so you were competing? Um, not together, but you were training together, etc. No, no, she's she's quite a bit younger than me. So I was I grew up in uh, Chepstow, around for Newport Harriers, and she's from Bedfordshire. I was running for Bedford Harriers, I think, at that time. But I was at the University of Brighton. I'd done my undergraduate degree there, and I just started to do my my PhD in exercise physiology, but I, with a particular focus on on the physiology of distance running and how you evaluate a person's potential in um, in distance running events from treadmill. Um, protocols essentially that's what I that's what I was doing back then this is sort of about 1990-1991 things like the English Institute of Sport didn't exist so elite athletes if they wanted to get sports science support typically went to universities but the the connection between myself and Paula did come about through more through my running um, achievements than from my scientific ones back then because a guy called uh, Bud Baldaro, who was quite a famous coach from the from the Midlands at that time, uh, you know, was the national junior cross country coach, I think, and was aware that Paula was just a fantastic athlete. But her, she just had a couple of bad races, and nobody could really understand why. So he knew of me through through my own running successes from a few years earlier. Knew that I was studying you know, exercise physiology at Brighton, and was starting to to, to you know, offer physiological testing services, I guess, to athletes. And he recommended to Paula and her coaches at that time that they could maybe come to uh, the University of Brighton and, and have a physiological evaluation to try to understand why it was that at that stage he was, you know, just a little bit off form. Um, and we did that, and it, you know, it went, went really well. We, we discovered lots of things that were really good about her fitness, a couple of things that might explain why she had a bit of a dip in form. That all, you know, that went well. She got the things corrected that were deficient, started to run brilliantly well, and then was kind of sold on uh, on the sports science experience, really, and felt that she could uh, uh, learn a little bit more from it. And so that relationship became pretty firmly established, and I worked with her for probably about 15 years altogether after that point. Wow. So what, what sort of metrics were you looking at um, and then ha- then helping her to tweak, as it were? Well, the, the key physiological variables, if you're a middle or a long distance runner, are things like your VO2 max. I'm sure it's a phrase everybody's kind of read about. It's, it's the maximal rate at which you can take oxygen from the air that you breathe and transport it to your muscles and then 
and then use it basically to combust carbohydrate and fat to generate energy. So VO2 max, you know, you, that's got to be pretty high if you're going to achieve success at a reasonably high level. Um, the fraction of that VO2 max that you can operate at for long periods, so that seems to be related to your so-called lactate threshold. There's a certain speed above which lactate accumulates in your blood really rapidly, and that's associated with a whole cascade of other fatiguing, um, you know, things happening within your muscles. Some things are depleting really rapidly. Some things are accumulating, but ultimately it means your muscles are functioning less well. Um, that's what we call fatigue. So we measure the lactate threshold and uh, something called running economy. It's, if you're a cyclist, it's efficiency. If you're if you're running, it's economy. But basically, if if you get a group of people all running at exactly the same speed, they don't all necessarily expend the same amount of energy or consume the same amount of oxygen. Some people are much more economical than others. You know, can transport their body mass over the ground uh, using less fuel, using less energy. Uh, so it's those three things. Um, plus, we do a bunch of other things even before we get them on the treadmill. You know, we you measure height, body mass body fat percentage, lung function, flexibility, leg power, um, and hemoglobin concentration just from a from a thumbprint can tell you a little bit about. I mean, obviously, the hemoglobin in your blood is what transports or helps to transport the oxygen from your lungs to your muscles. So that has to be at a reasonably high level. And, and on that first test with Paula, we discovered that she was suffering from a bit of iron deficiency anemia. Um, and that's the thing that you know, that was holding her back a little bit, and she got that corrected. And within a couple of months, she'd won the World Junior Cross Country Championships, which is what you know was the springboard to uh, a great deal of future success. Wow. Okay. And Andrew, you mentioned running economy there. Can you, because probably not many listeners who you know uh, are not elite athletes probably don't quite know what what that is, what it means. And um, so, could you kind of enlarge a little bit about what it what it is and what it means? Yeah, so if you if you run a kilometer, um, that's obviously going to cost you some energy. You have to transport your body mass over that ground. And it, it almost doesn't matter if you go fast or slow. It's still going to cost you a certain amount of energy. Um, but actually, the amount of energy that it takes people to transport their body mass over that kilometer can vary quite a bit. So I mean, I'm, I actually turn out to be quite an economical um person which is helpful um it, it so so basically when i run that kilometer i don't need to bring in too much oxygen per kilometer to get myself from a to b other people need a lot more sometimes 10 or 15 percent more so so that's really what it is and the people who are more economical use less oxygen so if you and if you use if let's say you're going at a particular speed if you're using less oxygen that would be a lower fraction of your vo2 max so therefore it feels a bit easier and you'd be able to sustain that speed for much longer if you had to. Or you could go at a, at a higher speed and still be comfortable. Um, exactly what determines running economy is, is another question. But, you know, that's a much more involved answer, but it's probably a lot to do with your biomechanics. Your, in other words, your running technique. Um, sometimes when you look at people run, you can some, some people look much more efficient than others. They've got a smooth running action and, and other people are a bit ragged. Sometimes it holds true that the people who whose form doesn't look very good are also those that are least economical but it isn't quite as sim simple as that you know um uh yeah there was a study done recently where you know a coach's eye while it's pretty good at discriminating those that are economical from those that are not isn't it's not perfect by any stretch of the imagination it, and no, is I there a way looking, looking at something like sorry mate 
was um, just going to say, is there a way in which you can kind of... Sorry, Greg. I was just going to say, is, is no, there no, a way in which you can... There's a time delay. There's a time delay, mate. Richmond is how, how many how many hours behind is it? <laughs> yeah, it's a different time zone. You, I mean, go, first. There, you go first. Okay, you go first. I'll go first. So, I mean, is there a way in which you can kind of improve work on your running economy? Um, it doesn't sound like it's kind of set in stone that you could probably do something to improve that. Yeah, you you, you can. Um, and actually, one of the interesting things about my work with Paula was that right from the age of 17 or 18 her vo2 max was really high it was like well over 70 which is pretty phenomenal for for a female and um it was clear that she had huge potential for the future but her running economy at that time wasn't particularly good it was fairly average but if you looked if you you know track her physiology over the over, over her entire career we did i did publish a paper on this her vo2 max didn't really change very much but she got progressively more economical year on year on year. Um, now, exactly why that was the case, you know, you have to speculate a bit. But basically, it's just, I think she was just doing a, you know, more miles, more frequently, more consistently. And running economy absolutely is is plastic and malleable and and changes over time. It's, it won't change overnight, um, but it but it will change. The, the more you run and it depends a bit on the speed to which you run. You become more, most economical at the speed at which you run most frequently. Essentially, what happens is your body goes, hang on, this is a stress that keeps being applied to me. I need to find a way to make this easier. And, and so, you, you know, you, you iron out some of those inefficiencies in your technique. It might be as well that your muscle fibers um, become more efficient at processing the oxygen as well. So so basically all you need to do to improve your running economy is keep running. Just be as consistent as you possibly can. Run over a range of speeds, you know, make sure you've got the right amount, the right volume, um, the right intensities, the right frequencies, but just do it over the longer term. I mean, Paula's economy was getting better and better and better for about 15 years in a row. So when you get a bit older and things, and your VO2 max eventually will start to decline, that doesn't necessarily mean that your performance will follow suit because some of those submaximal factors like your economy can continue to improve for, for a long period of time. There's some evidence as well that things like plyometric um, training, different forms of strength training can improve your economy as well because you get more sort of rebound um, with your stride, something called the stretch shortening cycle. So there's, there's things you can do. It's mainly run more, <laughs> um, but maybe there's a little bit you can do in the gym that can facilitate your, your economy as well. I mean, it, it comes back to the, as far as I can see, the sort of specificity of training. So a cyclist won't necessarily make a good runner and a runner won't make a necessarily a good cyclist. Um, so you've got to, as you say, you've just got to keep on doing what you want to do to get better at it. Yeah, absolutely. And if you want um, to run a marathon, let's say, at a particular speed, then it makes sense that you run some of the time at that speed because you there's no good being really economical at a speed that's, way you know way slower than your marathon speed or way faster than you you want to be as efficient as you possibly can at your marathon speed in that case so uh, yeah specificity is absolutely key which kind of leads on to because uh, uh, i mean obviously we want to kind of chat about what you've learned working with some of these greats but but uh, i'm also quite intrigued as to um you set yourself a challenge i think this year to to try and go sub three hour for the marathon um so are you and obviously you're doing that as a, as a as a midlife athlete so what what are you taking from those greats and what are you applying to yourself because i think you know if if it's good for you then i think we should probably all be doing it 
<laughs> yeah, well, it's a, it's a combination of things, really. Yeah, so the, the backstory is that you know because I was pretty successful as a as a junior, but you know I've tried other sports, but I really like to run. There's something about running that appeals to me, and I'm reasonably reasonably good at it. Even if I haven't been training for a while, I can get fit at running quite quickly. Um, and the trouble is when you run fast times at 1500 meters and 10k and half marathon you know you can't help but compare whatever you run you know last weekend to what you did 30 years ago and it's always embarrassing um but you know, that's human nature so the reason that I, I did the marathon was um and it was about it was two almost two years ago to the day that i ran my first one and it was I chose the marathon because I couldn't. I'd never ran one before, so I couldn't compare myself. It was always, it was going to be a personal best, whatever happened. So so that was always going to be nice. Plus, if you commit to running a marathon, you're going to have to train, aren't you? So and that's what I wanted to do was build running into my daily lifestyle again. And um, on that first occasion, I you know, I my preparations weren't very good. I ran the Sea of Galilee marathon over in Israel because I'd got invited to speak at a conference there. And I thought, well, I might as well run the race. But it was it was hot and my, you know, everything that could have gone wrong probably did. And I ran 3.34. Um, but the last five or six miles were horrific. They were like the most – I don't remember much about them, actually. It was as close to death as I'd ever got. Um, <laughs> horrendous. And I thought, well, I, I, I can do better than that. So I, I signed up to do um, the Moscow Marathon. So, from, you know, from one extreme to another, and, and while – Sea of Galilee was Tiberius Marathon was really hot. Um, it turned out to be absolutely freezing in Moscow. It was like barely above zero and sleet and the hail and the wind. And I did 301 then, and I, I was, um, that was about 18 months ago. 301.30, I wanted to go under three. So I thought, well, I can't just you know leave it there. Sub three is absolutely uh, beckoning to me, and I'm pretty sure I can do it. So I'd signed up to a load of races last year, which of course were all cancelled, weren't they? Um, I'd signed up for Amsterdam and Prague, and you know they, they've either been well, they've all been postponed. So the the Prague one, I think, it got postponed for six months and then got um, postponed again. But it's in it's supposed to be May the second of this year. Now it's touch and go whether it will actually happen. Um, yeah, but the goal is is to try and break three in Prague on May the 2nd of this year when I'll be uh, 51 in a couple of months. Um, and I, how I kind of go about it, I mean, I've got, I guess it, it's a blending of my prior experience as a runner. I know what kind of works for me or did work for me back then. I know I know the science. I know how to structure a training program, how to make it progressive, how to make it specific. I mean, if anything, I've got a tendency to to get a bit overexcited and do too much. And the one lesson I have to remind myself of and still haven't learned fully is that when you're in your 50s and even in your 40s, you can't train like you did when you were in your teens and your 20s. You know, you, you have to – you can't take the volume. Um, you, your body just can't take the load anymore. You can't take the intensity either because you take a bit longer to recover from a, after a hard session. So I write the program – you know, as, as if I was 23 or something. And I, and I think, oh, that's, that's manageable. But what I do now is I revisit it and go, cut that back, cut that back. And that, you know, that's one thing I learned from from Elliot and his Kenyan um, teammates is that, that, you know, they don't get obsessive about their training too much, that they put the prescription into the hands of their coach, Patrick Sang, they have ultimate faith in him, and they don't know really what they're doing from one day to the next. So, therefore, they can't be worrying about the next session. They, um, they're just very kind of calm about it. And, uh, and Elliot doesn't 
absolutely hammer himself that much. He does a big volume and he trains pretty hard, you know, on some days, but he doesn't leave his best performances on the on the training pitch like I've sometimes. You know, I, I used to train for training sake. I think, I, you know, and while I ran some good um, good race times, I could probably have been faster if I trained a little bit less. And I, I still have to remind myself of that. Um, but I am so I've always really been self coached, and I enjoy that aspect of it. I, I like the science of of being really meticulous and precise about bringing myself to you know to, to that peak when it's um, when it's due, and and when it works, it's fantastic. I just have to be careful I don't end up with an injury. You know, halfway through. Andy, can I can I just ask? Um, in terms of your, you say you're, you still self train, and I'm sure a lot of our listeners are in a similar situation. So, with your knowledge um, of the aging process and how that affects um, performance, can you give us sort of little insights or tips um, that you apply now as you as you've got older to to your training and, and how you implement it? Um, well, I, I mean, the one thing you have to remember is that you're going to be running slower. So when I, when I used to go out for an easy, steady run, it would be sub-six-minute mileage. And, uh, you know, so it, it's closer to it's seven, eight now. So when you look at the volume of work that you do in a week, you have to take your speed into account. You can only, you can only you know, spare the same amount of time, right? So when, you, when I used to be doing 70 or 80 miles a week, that's the equivalent of probably 50 or 60 now. And I, sh- I shouldn't be trying to do 70 or 80 miles a week because I'd be doing it. I'd be spending so long doing it that I, it would lose the specificity. So that's, that's one, one lesson. Um, the other thing is you just have to build up slower. You can't get to running really well within a couple of weeks like I used to be able to do. Let's say you've had some downtime. I used to be able to get really fit really quickly. If I tried to do that today, I would end up injured. So I have to give myself many more weeks. So build that up slowly. It used to be the case that I could go out of the door and I'd be, you know, immediately into five and a half minute mile within within hundred meters. And I can't do that anymore. I, I that. It takes me a good couple of miles to warm up. So that's something that absolutely changes. So you've got to be really gentle in those first few minutes uh, to to limber everything up. I think. Um, the other, and the other thing is, you know, for me now it's not just about the marathon performance. I'm thinking about health and you know living a uh, high quality life for, for as long as i can so what it isn't just about trying to develop endurance i do combine it with some with some weight training the other thing i took up just before well for a year or so before lockdown happened was um was body balance um once or twice a week which i found was great so it just works on flexibility literally balance it's got elements of yoga and pilates all that kind of stuff stuff i, I would have sneered at 10 years earlier but you know when I when I see myself crawl down the stairs in the morning, I'm thinking this this can't be right. I'm not that old yet, and that's something that you know I, I've, I feel is important. It's not just about your endurance and your strength and and making yourself you know kind of fitter and tighter all the time. It's also having that that you know your definition of fitness and health. I think can and probably should change a bit as you get into your forties and fifties. So so making sure I've got you know good enough proprioception and balance so that i don't fall over in 10 years and break my hip so you know it's not just having cardiovascular fitness and being strong enough it's making sure that you're you're resilient to those sorts of things as well and yeah you know, your things stiffen up a bit don't they when you get a bit older so that that flexibility and that um is quite, i found it quite a relaxing kind of class to do as well so 
so whatever whatever floats your boat as far as that goes. I found this body balance class was a really good combination of all of that, those things that other people were doing um, uh, in a specific session. But you know whether it be yoga, yoga Pilates, or like people do that. I probably wouldn't have done it just on my own, but to sign up to a class at the leisure centre and go once or twice a week, I think that did me good prior to to Moscow. Do you think do you think it, that helped you in your performance? And if, and if so, what way? It's it's obviously hard to say, but I mean, I did avoid injury. I'd, I'd actually signed up for quite a few marathons before I eventually got to the Sea of Galilee one. Um, I, I got an entry for New York one time, um, a couple of times, but I, I can't remember exactly, but I trained for them and I didn't make the start line. Oh, and I actually started Paris, but I, I didn't finish it because I ended up rupturing my plantar fascia after going down the Champs-Élysées on the cobbles after a few miles. Um, so, you know, arguably the reason that I made the start line, and obviously you can't make the finish line unless you make the start line, is because I didn't get injured. And maybe the body balance and having that more balanced portfolio of activities and a different perspective helped me in that regard. Well, certainly from a from a physio point of view, when I'm dealing with runners, sorry, sorry, Jade, um, but I see a lot of the young, I see a lot more younger runners than older runners. I tend to see the older runners tend to have they've found their their niche they 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 know their body they know how to train they know how to run and they 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 stick to that whereas the younger runner uh someone who maybe was athletic in their youth had some time off family work etc got back into it, they come back into it too hard still thinking that they are the 23 year old so but it's interesting how as I say as you get older I think the older runners just they know they've been doing it for so long that they just get they just get better at, at reading their body. A bit more sensible, yeah. That, that makes sense. It kind of um, yeah, echoes echoes my experiences, doesn't mm. it? Mm. And I know you've done a lot of, um, and I've read some of your stuff in in relation to um, beetroot juice. But could you just maybe just touch a little bit on on nutrition and whether or not you think. Um, you know, as as we're getting older, we need to kind of change our diets and nutrition elements if we still want to kind of you know do that sub three hour marathon. And 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 is there any, again anything that you've kind of taken from 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 working with those greats around nutrition and diet? Um, I haven't really learned a lot from from the elites on on that side of things. Um, they keep their diets fairly fairly simple, I would say. Um, I mean, when it comes to things like ergogenic aids and supplements, I do think they they really are the icing on the cake. You know, people think it's going to be a shortcut to success, and it really isn't. I, I don't pay a lot of attention to it, really. You know, I, I I like to cook actually, so and and so food is a big part of my my week, and I plan that, and I enjoy um, preparing and, and eating it, and it's varied and balanced and all of that sort of thing. But I don't take I drink a lot of tea and coffee, so I get my caffeine, but I don't take, you know, creatine. I don't really use nitrates or anything like that. It doesn't mean to say I don't think they can be beneficial, but it's small fractions, and for the elite, it can make a bit of a difference. It's not going to, you know, in and of itself make me go from 301 to 259. I've got to put in the hard yards for that to happen. Um, I mean, the story with the dietary nitrate or the beetroot juice thing is that, you know, when when you get a bit older, it's more difficult to generate um, nitric oxide, and nitric oxide controls your your blood vessels, for example. But it also actually acts on the mitochondria within your muscles as well, and on the contractile apparatus. 
And, um, you know, as I say, our, our innate ability to generate it through an enzyme called nitric oxide synthase goes down as you get older. And that's partly why your blood pressure tends to go up. But there's this alternative pathway to generate nitric oxide through dietary nitrate. So we've got nit nitrate that we take in our diets. It gets converted in our the bacteria in our mouths to nitrite. And then that nitrite can very easily become nitric oxide in areas of the body where it's needed. Um, and when you feed people dietary nitrate, their blood pressure goes down. So one way to sort of offset the you know progressive hypertension that occurs may be to ensure that you eat sufficient um, nitrate in your diet. And that doesn't mean necessarily all beetroot or, or plug in a half pint of beetroot juice a day, although you can do that if you want. But it, it's green leafy vegetables. It's salads, spinach, you know, and very fruits and vegetables, but particularly the green leafy ones is the key thing. There's some suggestion as well that, you know, as, as you get a bit older, um, antioxidants might be important to prevent inflammation and so on. But, but if, you know, but, but that's contained in the green leafy vegetables and the, and the fruits as well. So probably we need to just be sure of that. The other thing maybe is protein. Um, as you get a bit older, it, arguably you need a little bit more protein to maintain muscle mass because otherwise that can, that can be lost. So paying some attention to getting good quality uh, protein each day is probably another consideration especially i think maybe when you get into your 60s and 70s probably still just about okay in the 50s although you'd be on the slide <laughs> well that's it we had this discussion um, uh, sorry jace we, we had this discussion um uh a few episodes back about how much protein do you actually need and there's uh you can calculate it based on your your body mass but we our, our debate was more a case of saying well this in certainly the western diet do you not think we're eating enough protein, if not more protein, than we actually need? Yeah, I think so. Probably. Yeah, I don't. Th I think it would be difficult not to get the protein that you know the, the portions that we feed ourselves, steaks and things like that, is probably ample. I mean, there's some some suggestion of making sure that you spread your protein appropriately throughout the day. So, so we tend to have very little protein in the morning for breakfast. Um, unless you have a big fry-up or something, which isn't necessarily recommended, but then you have a massive protein load in the, in the evening. So spreading, it, spreading out the protein over three or four meals is probably a sensible thing to do. Well, Andy, I'm conscious that we're, um, uh, we've got sort of limited, limited time uh, with you. I just, um, again, wanted to say um, thanks, for, thanks for your time. Um, thanks for some of the tips and insights you provided. Uh, and I think we wish you all the best for that breaking that three hour mark. Um, yeah. Good luck. Hopefully it, hopefully. It'll be very much. Yeah. Well, I, I've, I've got um, Amsterdam, like the, the rescheduled Amsterdam in October, if all else fails, but I don't know. Trouble is you can't keep putting your life on hold. Can you? I've just got to assume that it's on. To be honest, and if it isn't, I'll probably try and run one anyway on my treadmill or on the streets or something. I, just, I still want to get in th sub three hour shape because actually, I mean, at the end of the day, while I want to go under three hours in an official race, it's it's more about having the goal and and being fit enough to do it. You know, so, so the entering the race is a means to an end in a sense. But anyway, yeah, I appreciate the um, good wishes. Now, actually, is this, that just begs just maybe one final question because. And I guess we're probably a lot of us are in this situation. Events have been postponed and we're kind of clinging to future dates. Are you finding that you're, because you're, obviously you can't, you want to peak for that 
whatever that event is, let's say it's going to be your Prague marathon or, or your Amsterdam one, whichever you're aiming for, and you can't keep at that peak. So how, how are you adapting your training to kind of cope with possibility of having to race in May, but, but could be October? As I say, I'm, I'm just assuming that it's on. I don't, you know, until until someone tells me it's off, I've just got to have a you know very narrow focus and assume it's on. And just I just train day by day. I like I like sketching out the training. I've actually got every day of training sketched out until the second of May at the moment. And um, I just I, I just like putting a green tick in in my uh, in my box on my, on my notes on my iPhone. You know that day's done and it's all going well so far. So that's I think that's all you can do. And if if and as and when I get the notification that it's off, then I'll kind of consider my uh, my options at that point. I might I might shelve it, come come back down to a lower level and ramp back up for Amsterdam. Um, but on the other hand, actually, I do most of my training on. I'm fortunate enough; I've got my own sort of gym down in the basement, including quite a nice treadmill, um, from which I do most of my training. So you know, there's no reason why I couldn't do it there. I, I've um, I, I sort of advertised that I'm training for the Prague Marathon on, on Twitter as well, and uh, people were interested in my training, so I've been posting that up on a weekly basis. So it, I feel a bit um, embarrassed to bail out now. I feel like I've got to run a marathon somewhere on the second of May, even even if it's uh, in my basement. We've all we've all been there, Andy. Don't worry. Greg, Greg, particularly, he's he's to annual challenges that he can't bail out of. So uh, now, listen, we we, we wish yeah. you all the best. We'll. Um, We'll retweet your stuff on Twitter, and um, hopefully we'll get we'll get some listeners to uh, to tune in and your progress. And fingers crossed. All right, thanks very much indeed. Thanks, Andy. See ya. Bye. Midlife Athlete Podcast is supported by Health and Fitness Solutions. Health and Fitness Solutions is a well-established and highly respected provider of physiotherapy and podiatry services based in the City of London and Harley Street. We take pride in being able to offer a wealth of experience and expertise in dealing with a wide range of muscular skeletal conditions, from acute sprained ankles through to the more complex and long-standing issues that have failed with treatment elsewhere. We are dedicated to getting you better. For a full list of the services we offer, visit our website hfs-clinics.co.uk.